What's Underneath is a CastBox original produced in partnership with Studio 71. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all of your favorite podcasts. You can listen to What's Underneath wherever you get your podcasts, but we hope you'll give CastBox a shot and see for yourself. Hello and welcome to What's Underneath, the podcast that will inspire radical self-acceptance through empowering you to embrace what's unrepeatable in you. I'm Lily Mandelbaum, and sitting next to me is my mom, Elisa Goodkind. And we are Style Like You. In our new podcast, we are going to expand the types of intimate, unfiltered conversations we've been having in our viral video series, The What's Underneath Project. Each week, we will interview diverse nonconformists about their relationship to style, self-image, and identity. Being radically honest without shame and holding that honesty with compassion is self-acceptance. So, Mom, who are, Lils, we, who are we here with today? We're with Alok. And who is Alok? <laughs> Alok is someone that we shot What's Underneath on a while ago, a few years ago. I love that they call themselves in that video, Baby Alok. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it was a extremely transformative experience um, because of how incredibly articulate and um, insightful on another level they are about the gender binary and the oppression in our culture regarding gender. And it changed my life. And since that day, I am a super, super, super fan, not only of most of what Alok has to say about the world and, um, because I just, I just, I also, for, for a couple of reasons, one, um, since that interview and since, um, the awareness that it gave me, I have this sense that, um, smashing the gender binary is probably the most essential thing that we need to do in terms of changing our entire society. Because once that is eradicated, it eradicates everything else. (laughs) It's, it's like the core, um, that duality is at the core and at the essence of, um, a system that puts everything into duality. So when it really in reality is not in duality, it's just something that's there to keep us separate, to keep us hating each other. And you can see that duality spread through almost everything. Um, once you're aware of that gender duality and binary, it makes you aware of the duality that's been created around everything, um, that oppresses us, that keeps us separate, that keeps, keeps us afraid of each other and keeps us Um, not accepting ourselves or the other. So for that reason, I have an enormous amount of respect for them. And, um, and then the other part of my respect comes from how much I love their style. Mm -hmm. Um, style for me has, um, almost disappeared. Um, and there's, there, there's in terms of Um, what I consider style to be, um, something that is, uh, wholly coming from the spirit of a person, um, that is free and, um, extremely expressive and fun and joyful that turns your mind 
and senses and everything inside out. And and Alok is someone who has that kind of style that I'm extremely inspired by. Yeah, they're my style icon right now. <laughs> so for those two reasons, I'm very excited to be here doing this podcast with them. So with that, how are you feeling today, Alok? Um, wow, I'm so emotional after that introduction. It was like, so true. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I could announce myself with just snapping beforehand, but I was snapping. I'm feeling great. Feeling good. Um, what would you say you are feeling like the most excited about in general in your life at this moment? I was in Los Angeles last week and there's this really great restaurant there called Cafe Gratitude. And what they do is they ask, they give you like a prompt to talk about while you're eating. And the prompt they gave us was what gives you fulfillment, which I just love that concept. Shout out to Cafe Gratitude. I'm looking for a residency at your restaurant, free food, hit me up. <laughs> and I really asked myself that question, what is fulfilling me? Because I feel like often we don't ask ourselves that. We just go through the rope mechanisms, but to actually say what, what gives me fulfillment. And the answer I really gave is there's a moment when you're talking to someone and their eyes begin to glisten because they're talking about something that that they haven't articulated before or that they're learning through speaking, through talking to you. And that interaction for me is a metaphor for like everything I want in the world, which is that we need each other to actually know ourselves. Um, we have to be in dialogue with someone else in order to figure out who we are and that self-awareness comes through collectivity and not through just like going off into a cabin in the woods as we're taught it does. Um, because I think for me that that sense of interdependence is I think what keeps me going is that I, I can get through these things not by myself, but by actually sharing with other people and working through it together. I couldn't agree more with what you just said in terms of what we're doing. I, I've always thought that um, the most creative and fulfilling thing is connecting to another person. Mm hmm. Yeah, so it's it's like an it's it's an addiction for us. Mm -hmm. um, and so, can you talk about what you mean when you say getting through these things? Mm -hmm. What are you talking about? I've recently really started been thinking a lot about how we have so much complex vocabulary to describe physical violence uh, and war, but we have very little vocabulary to describe emotional pain. And so, we use words like sad to hold multitudes <laughs> and sad doesn't do justice to all the different nuances that are denoted in the term and so what i've started to really realize is we're constantly recreating a hierarchy where physical equals real and everything that's not physical is dismissed as not real and i think that what that does is actually make us have to harbor so much chronic pain and anxiety and depression and disorientation that we don't understand as real pain or real violence and so when I'm saying getting through the things, I mean all the things. I mean that everything is worthy of pain and grief and ceremony and funeral. Things like I really wanted the scholarship and I didn't get it. That still hurts. And to not actually approach problems with needing to hierarchize them. Mm -hmm. Like I think that's what we often do mm -hmm. is we don't allow ourselves to feel because we're like, oh, this is insignificant in the scheme of things. But mm -hmm. what I'm actually saying is everything is significant. And I think that my commitment to showing up for the world is not dependent on extremity. Like I don't need it to be an urgent crisis in order for me to care. And I think that often the only ways we've been taught to care is when things are urgent. But what happens when we recognize that everything is urgent because everything matters and every feeling matters. So I think getting mm -hmm. through the things is any of the things that people are going through in that moment with their life. 
And I think friendship for me is such a beautiful modality to actually say, what are you going through? What do you need help with? And to allow people to actually express that on their own terms. I mean, it's so true. The, the idea that there's a hierarchy to feelings. I mean, I definitely can relate to that. It's like, oh, your problems aren't, you know, whatever, parental things, mm. you know, just this Victorian sort of mentality or whatever mm. it is, this patriarchal mentality that a feeling, a feeling's a feeling. Mm-hmm. There's no arguing with one's feelings. A feeling right. is a feeling and a feeling is justified. And right. that's it. Can you talk about what makes you so interested in feelings and yeah, why you care so much about feelings from a personal place? Like what? Yeah, I've not always been this way. Um, When I was younger, I was deeply emotionally repressed. I found it very difficult to be empathetic with other people. And then I think so much of coming into my queerness allowed me to sort of begin to feel. I remember this moment. Um, like I was 18 and I was at a chick flick and I just started sobbing in the theater. (laughs) And I was just, (laughs) since then, I cry every single movie I watch. I cry every single time I experience art. I cry every single time I have a good conversation. I'm so in touch now with everything. And I think that when I've been thinking about what, what, why I'm drawn to feelings and why I, I mean, I do a workshop called feelings. I, I always am talking about feelings. Because what I started to realize, actually, is that we have found ways to decorate the pain, to adorn the pain with, like, um, balloons and celebrate it, but we still won't actually confront the pain. (laughs) We'll put words around the pain, we'll intellectualize the pain, we'll theorize the pain, we'll politicize the pain, but we don't actually know how to actually go into the pain. And I started to realize that I found myself in so many settings in the world where people were actually just in pain, but were using theory, were using politics, We're using all these big things to legitimize it. And in the process to legitimize the feeling, the feeling actually festers like a wound. That actually feelings are important precisely because they are irrational and precisely because they are illogical. And that what a feeling actually requires the body to do is to submit. And we don't know how to submit at all. We constantly have to overcome be triumphant, move beyond. But I think what I find so powerful about feelings is that they're equal opportunity. Even the most powerful people can be brought to their knees through sadness. Like all the money we have in the world, all of the power we have in the world dissipates, disappears when we, when we grieve and when we lose and when someone dies. And I think that's a type of power that we don't elevate to the level of power. We, we talk about power as if it's just about physical once again. But what I'm starting to realize is that so much of the world is shaped by invisible things. And it's not that these things are invisible, it's that the lens we have to read them makes them invisible. And that often the things that are most important are the ones that we dismiss as insignificant or invisible. So things like feeling and gender and all these things matter so much to me because we're taught that they don't. And I think it's precisely the things that we're taught that don't matter that actually matter. Right, and then what happens is it's, that's what causes the violence mm-hmm. and that that's what causes unhappiness in people. Right. It's really actually very simple at the end of the day, but it's become so complicated because it's all repressed and intellectualized. Right. Absolutely. What, for You said that like when you came into your queerness is when you right. also like came into your feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, can you like talk a little bit about why you think like the period before you had come into your queerness like was synonymous with repression and then queer... Like, Absolutely, yeah. More, more about like your personal experience with, mm-hmm. with feelings and that evolution. 
I've been doing a lot of this work, so it's interesting you asked me that because I had a really momentous conversation with my friends. I mean, all my conversations with my friends are momentous, but I'm just going <laughs> to keep on using that word. And she asked me to look at my closet and she said, six years ago, would you have worn anything in this closet? And I said, absolutely not. Like, I would have been <laughs> deeply petrified. No way. And what she was trying to say is you are a work in progress. And while you're becoming, you don't realize it. But then after the fact, you look and be like, whoa, how I've become this. And what we keep on doing in social justice is we want people to be their best selves immediately. And that's not how things work. Actually, people have to learn and be exposed to and, it, and immerse themselves. And it takes time. And so I started to think, how did I become the free person I am today? Because I want to model that for other people and help other people have that process. And one of the things I started to realize is that I became free because when I was younger, I couldn't express the violence I was experiencing because that would betray that I was actually queer and trans and I would experience more violence. So I had to internalize it. That's exactly what Lewis was exactly about. what he said in right. this podcast. I couldn't speak about it because if I spoke about it, then people would know. So I had to repress, mm. repress, 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 repress. And so that coming out for me was less about gender. It's like, like whatever. As it more, it was about honesty. And I think a lot about honesty. Like, I, I'm not really interested in love as a framework because often love is just synonymous with use. I'm interested in honesty, like to actually encounter the entirety of who we are and who we love actually looks like the bad parts, the inconvenient parts, the boring parts, the superfluous parts, the parts that are irritating messy messy all of it and i think what i allowed myself to do when coming into my queerness was to actually just be honest about everything and i was like you know what i've been so repressed for so long i never want to be repressed again and that's why i think i'm so i i, I find so much tragedy in the contemporary gay movement is i'm like you all resonate with repression why do you continue the repression in other parts of your life <laughs> like i i thought coming out was less about just our gender and sexuality and more about being whole and I, I think it's very, very difficult for people to be emotionally honest. I think that for me is what my definition of strength is. Like mm. when I call people strong, these are not people who are conventionally powerful, but these are people who are emotionally honest. And I think that recalibrating that for me has been so productive for my life to really gravitate towards people who are emotionally honest and to find those as my people. Right. And like, as you said, going into the pain, mm -hmm. which is such a scary thing to do but there is no other side there is no liberation and and freedom from the pain unless you go into it i can personally attest to those struggles myself and they're and they're sort of never ending but um and accepting them are accepting the pain is a big is a big part too and not making pain something that's scary or something to run from i think that's you know in the society it's we're, we're always trying to numb the pain and all it's doing is creating more pain. Mm -hmm. Whereas the, if you actually dive into it, you're um, finding the, you're finding mm -hmm. the love, the actual real love. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the healing. Can you, can you bring us through the moments a little bit of becoming your whole self? Mm -hmm. Like what, you know, from that moment of the movie and, mm -hmm. and then to where you are now and like what, I don't know. I know that's a big question. Yeah, I'm like, okay, we got like 30 okay. hours. Yeah, um, I'll think of some like highlights. Yeah, highlights. <laughs> um, like hmm. maybe a down, like a like a like a you know like a where where maybe a a, a very painful moment hmm. um, then brought you to a better place. Right. Yeah. Okay, I'll think about. Uh, I'll talk about that. 
I think the thing that comes to mind is in, in 2016, I was performing in Australia. I'm a performance artist. And um, it was the middle of the afternoon. And after I gave a really great performance, I got bashed physically. So, what? By who? Um, by a stranger on the train. He just came up and he punched me in the face. And I was in a, a train with 20, 20 odd people and not a single person did anything. And that was like such a huge moment for me because I was just sort of like, I felt like I gave and I give and I give and I give and I give. And in the moment that I needed support from other people, people were just silent. And then I just kept on thinking if I looked different, if I identified different, if I was different, people would see me as a victim, but no one cared. And to have to confront the reality of that disposability to be like, it's the middle of the day, I'm in public, I actually had a friend there with me, and he didn't even do anything. And I I, I found myself saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, which I felt like ridiculous about saying, because I was like, You said you're sorry to your friend? No, I said, I'm sorry to the person who attacked me. Because he basically said, if you don't shut up, I'm going to bash you harder, you know. Um, And I'm okay with gay people, but you're too much. And so I was just trying to de-escalate him and get to my next destination and sort of make sure it didn't get bigger. And it was a really intense moment, but the the kind of intensity where in the moment you don't realize how, how meaningful it is. I didn't cry. I didn't really feel that much about it. But then it stayed in my body until I really started to process it, write about it, think through it. And one of the things that I found myself kind of mad at myself at first is that I was not mad at that man. And so many ways, in a lot of ways, I found a deep love of that man because he was honest. I think what I really appreciated was that man articulated what those 20 people on the train wanted to say, what so many people think about me in this world, that I am too much. And what he was really saying when he said, if you don't shut up, is that the, the person inside of him that he sees himself as needs to shut up, that he was externalizing the own conflict he had in himself on other people and once I sort of began to realize that I had this deep 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 resonant love where I was like the people who are doing violence to me have already enacted this violence on themselves and that actually I have two choices I can respond with that same type of vitriol or I can respond with a militant compassion where I can actually look at the people who are violent to me and say I understand and not, that's not saying I deserve it or accept it, but I understand why you're doing this. And I understand why you've been misled to believe that violence will give you salvation, but it won't. And I think for me, that was such a huge moment for me where I was just sort of like, I no longer believe in bad people. I no longer believe in, in people who are wrong or who are, who are, uh, who are just, you know, negative. I, I believe that all people are capable of good. It's just that they have to have good happen to them and they have to have people love them and heal them. And then I I started to really empathize with him to be like, did he have loving people in his life? Did he have people in his life who actually supported him, who said, you don't have to be masculine, who said, you can just be yourself? Did he have people who hugged him and embraced him? And And I started to think maybe he didn't. And so then I said, maybe if I create as much good energy in the world, that's going to go back so that those silent people on the train and that him will be able to actually recognize that when one person is, 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 uh, experiences violence, it's all of us experiencing violence. 
and that when one person does bad, it's all of us being bad. And I think that was such a foundational moment for me because I think a lot of what we do, what we do when we talk about emotional justice or when we talk about emotionality is we only find sympathy with victims and we don't actually recognize that everyone is a victim in this world and that everyone has had bad things happen to them. And to actually do that work of humanizing the people who have done injury and harm to us, I think is extremely difficult emotional work. And I wanna be very clear here, when I say humanizing the people who have done harm to us, I'm not saying forgive. Like I'm not saying uh, accept. Like I still think people need to be accountable for the things that they do, but it is to understand that those people are just mere people as well. And in the same ways as a queer person, I don't want to be defined by my gender, by my sexuality. I don't want to define other people by one act of violence. And I want to actually think that those people are capable of transformation. And I want to think that that man could have been queer himself. And I think that's that's mm-hmm. where I think a lot of my emotional justice work kind of started to solidify for me, where I was like, I am not a minority. I started to reject that. I am not a minority. I've been minoritized. The difference between being a minority and, and being minoritized is, I think in a world where people were encouraged to be creative and complex and dynamic and forgiving and were loved and were supported, there'd be a lot more people like me. Uh, but for whatever reason, I had people in my life who believed in me in a way that other people didn't. And when people ask me, like, how are you so brave? How do you keep going? I'm like, I have an amazing support network. I have a lot of people in the world who are rooting for me. And so in my lowest lows, I can outsource that low. And I can go to other people and say, I'm hurting. Those people can be like, I believe in you. And that helps me bounce back. I don't think that man had people believe in him. Right. And I love I love the fact that you're using... Um in every day, I mean, it's the ultimate performance art is that you use this freedom of expression in your style, which is so exciting and unique and you get so much joy out of it. And it's Mm -hmm. so free and it's busting and smashing, you know, pretty much every, uh, I don't know, like every box of how one dresses depending on your Mm-hmm. you know, on your, um, the body that you came in with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, it, 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 the fact that that is bringing out in people on a daily basis that you have the courage every day to go out into the world and smash that and then deal with the res- that to awaken people. Mm-hmm. And that's at, at times you're, you're, um, receiving an enormous amount of grief and, and, and hardship and violence for doing so is pretty, is pretty amazing. Can, um, yeah. Can I ask, can I hear a little bit more about your journey with that? Like, I'm, I'm very interested in how you said six years ago, you may not be wearing right. most of the things in your closet. Can you like talk through a little bit of how your, you know, your journey with becoming more comfortable, just being totally yourself, like publicly and, sure. and, and enduring what that, yeah. what comes with that? I think it was multifaceted as all of our journeys are and, and I'm still just processing it. But I think some things that come to mind is like making good friends. Like a lot of times when people ask me, what is the solution or what do we do? I just want to say friendship. <laughs> like I think friendship is literally so revolutionary and so powerful um, because what friendship really is to me is mutual aid. What friendship is to me is like, who do I call when I'm sick? What friendship is to me is like, who do I call when I'm in my breakup? Who do I call when I'm in a crisis? It's a decentering of me as an individual being responsible. 
like when I'm shopping, I, I literally take photos of everything and I text it to my friends and I'm like, should I get this? Like, <laughs> like my friends are part of building who I am. Um, and I don't really see myself as separate from those people that I love um, in so many ways. And so I think for me, we talk a lot about the, the violence and the injury we've experienced, but we often don't talk about the people who build us up. And, I, and I'm self-critical of myself of this. I'm really trying to be more balanced to be like, there is the bad, of course, but there's also the good. And in my life, I've had so many amazing and tremendous people enter my life who have fundamentally and irrevocably changed me. And in the moment, I didn't realize that. I was just like, oh, that's my friend so-and-so. But then I look back and I'm like, that person taught me how to process jealousy. Can you give me an example? Absolutely. Um, I'm currently living with my best friend, Chrissy. And she has taught me so much. But I think one of the many things that she taught me was that behind every powerful person is a deep and insistent insecurity. That actually people are not what they appear on the outside. Because I thought that if I made money, if I had success, I would be happy. <laughs> and what she taught me is none of those people are happy. That happiness is not what's exterior, it's what's internal. And that actually surface value, we can walk around the world seeing people thinking they're confident, inspirational, but we don't actually see their entirety. And so she really helped me develop the language around emotional justice in so many ways. Um, and I think we've been workshopping that language together for the past six years. I think friendship is where we go to workshop the language, like where we go to workshop our lives. And so now I see the ways in which directly she taught me how to how things are much more complex than what they seem, and how often what what what's really being manifested is a as, as a feeling that has been adorned with an outfit that has been adorned with politics that has been adorned with policy. And if we strip that back, it's often very simple things like I'm jealous. I'm sad, I'm angry, and that it's often those simple things that are the most profound. But I, I, I think in terms of like how I, how I came to what I'm doing now, I had those people love me, but then I also think I learned my history. I think in a lot of ways, it's very funny to me that the U.S. is, is, is invested in like building schools abroad when I, I'm literally like, your schools are failing. <laughs> like, I just, I don't think we're taught at all in this country about anything really, but mostly we're not taught how to be creative. We're not taught about the history of creative people. And so as I started to do mm -hmm. that self-work outside of school, to actually be like, who were the creative dissidents across time? There have always been people like me. And to know like that... Like who? I mean, so many. I'm, I'm thinking here, recently I've been reading a biography of Polly Murray, who is a civil rights activist who was gender nonconforming. And when Polly was doing uh, bus boycotts, and direct action, she was doing it in a suit. They were doing it in a suit. Never did I hear about Polly being gender nonconforming in the civil rights movement. Polly coined the term Jane Crow to describe the nexus of racism and sexism in the U.S. South. When I read about Polly's writing about their gender and how for a long time they understood themselves as a straight man because they felt like they weren't a woman, but they were attracted to women. I'm like, there have always been queer people, <laughs> like in everything, you know? Don't just Polly, but like uh, across the board, there's so many of us. But I, I, I think it just like being able to read those historical tidbits to be able to be like, I've always mm -hmm. been here. And then to ask myself, do you think that those people got support when they were alive? Absolutely not. The, the, the most visionary artists that we see now as so powerful, incredible, whatever, while they were actually making their work, no one cared at all. They experienced constant doubt and self-negation and self-flagellation. And they no kept, money. No and money. All the same problems that you know? we're all having. But they kept on making with... their work. 
and they believed in the work and that's why the work had a life beyond them. And I think that like for me as an artist, that was so foundational to actually be like, my audience now is not the only audience. There's a future that is going to be encountering my work and what I'm doing. And that right now they may not have the frameworks to understand my worth, but I know in the future they're going to be able to do it. I think when I actually started to take that self-education to learn the history of this country, the history of gender, the history of me, the history of where I came from, that really self-work, right? Because I think when I, I hate the term artist in so many ways because I think we're all artists. Like, I think mm. the term artist is very violent because it makes creativity just the domain of people who, who call themselves artists. It's so foolish. We all have mm. the capacity for creativity. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, what being an artist is, is synonymous with being a better person. Like, we should all be aspiring to be a better person. And part of the aspir- aspiration to be a better person is to educate ourselves. And education hurts. Education uh, feels. Education, that's what, what I'm saying was wrong with schools, is we're just taught facts and statistics, but we're not feeling those facts and statistics what does it mean to actually feel history and i think that's what performance allows me to do is it allows me to teach people but to not just cerebrally teach people but to teach them how to feel that thing how to feel what it means to inherit a world of blood and violence and how how it feels to say we want to have something different you know so i think when i started to educate myself when i started to surround myself with people who mattered to me and who were actually committed to happiness like to actually meet people who say I'm going to break a cycle of pain and violence in my life and I'm going to create happiness and joy in my life. Whoa. Meeting those people allowed me in so many ways to become me. And I, I think that that's why this moment of trans politics, I'm, I'm just kind of bored. People think I'm just doing like <laughs> trans. It's like, girl, that's mm-hmm. so limiting. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not, I'm not just doing non-binary. It's whole politics. You know? It's like the whole better Absolutely. person politics. I'm trying to become, I'm trying to figure out my life and I'm, and, and I think what we do when we make it just about gender or just about trans or just about mm-hmm. LGBTQ is you, you cordon us off again. Mm-hmm. You put us in another box again. Mm-hmm. I'm just so over that. Like what I'm really trying to do is just become. And that's not, that is about gender, of course, but it, it's less it, how do we become when there's no destination, when there's no fixed journey that I'm going. I'm in a constant process of self-evolution. And I think we all are, right? And so I think that what the closet metaphor, it was actually my friend Chrissy who said that to me, the six-year thing, the one who taught me about emotional justice. For me, that just was one of those solidifying moments where I was like, every single person in my life could be transformed if I loved them and cared about them and bore witness to them better and harder. So that's the energy I'm going to bring into the world is that I am really committed not just to my own transformation, but everyone's transformation. That in five or six years, the people I'm friends with could be completely different people. And that's okay. We're all moving around. And I think a lot of what love is to me is committing to one another's transformation, not just loving people for what they're stuck in in that dynamic. Like, I think that's where we mess up with relationships. We're like, don't change because change means you don't love me. No, like actually love means... You're changing. You're becoming something else. I support you in that journey. And the reality is that we're that there's always, everything is always changing. So it's an right. illusion if you think that it's not. Right. It's, you're just it's, right. it's, it's it's a delusional. Right. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe and give us a good rating so the powers that be can keep this podcast going. What do you think? Like uh, today, what you're wearing today, like says about where you are today hmm. on this journey. <laughs> so. I really, I really had this, oh, I'm thinking about another foundational experience for me. I was just in Eugene, Oregon two weeks ago, and this kid was at my show, and their parents are raising this kid gender neutral or gender free. And I just like sobbed later after meeting this kid, because this is the most free child I've ever met in my life. They were wearing a dress and a vest. How old? (laughs) Two years old. 
and, and, and literally, it was the best parenting I've ever seen in my life. Like, the kid was bored by my performance, would just walk away, the parents would follow. There was never, like, <laughs> stay here, keep quiet. It was just, like, you lead, we follow, you know? Oh my and they God. were just talking about how they raised this, parent, this child collectively and how they spent time with friends and how they valued this child's creativity. And I was just, like, I was so blown away. It's so beautiful, so amazing. And this kid just looked at me in the eyes, and we just we just locked eyes oh. for, like, five minutes. And I was just crying, and... And and I, I just really felt, I felt like a sense of like, what I'm doing is not new. It's what we were when we were kids, you know? We were free. We uh-huh. were undisciplined. We were unruly. We were creative. It's that, that the aberration is that we became this thing, this like zombie adult, emotionless, <laughs> conformist totally. category thing. So like when people are like, oh, like you're doing this new thing. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> I am in you. Totally. We were all reckless and carefree in that way, and we've lost that. And that was just such a huge reminder to me of of the sort of like conundrum we find ourselves in, where they call the things that are actually very old new, and you have this distorted perception and reality of the world. Mm-hmm. That is so true. Like if you just open the door to every child and just said, "Here's a box of clothes. Pick mm-hmm. whatever you want." be whoever you want, create whatever you want. I mean, that's where it, that's it. You remind me. There's nothing me else to do. About the question, which I'd forgotten what I was going to say. But the reason I brought that up is I'm wearing cow print socks today with like a functional heel, you know. And I love the shoes. Thank you. Um, and Spectator. When I am wearing cow print, I'm just kind of like, wow, I just like cow print. Like, it, 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 for me, it's it's less about, like, my outfit is about looking beautiful or looking, like, uh, desirable or looking like my uh, the gender I want to look. It's more about this is something that gives me joy. Like, I see cow print and I'm like, oh, my God, I love that. So the ability to wear that on my sock just feels awesome. Like, I'm literally just a bulletin board for, like, the things that are giving me joy. And I don't really think about, like, matching or I don't really think about, like, a cohesive look. I'm just staging things that give me joy. And that's why I love patterns and prints so much. Because what I'm able to do is kind of like a Pinterest board for the world. Like, here's some colors. Here's some things that have been recently, like, giving me happiness. Like, hopefully this will give you happiness, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that when I'm trying to compose my outfits, like, it's the mood that leads it, not like the style or the like necessarily the cut or like the convention. It's much more about the mood. And I think that as I've been able to access how I actually feel, my outfits get better and better and better and better. Because when people ask me like, you know, how do I become more stylish? I'm like, the focus is not on the brands. The focus is not on what, what, what your body shape is or what the focus is actually on your mood. Like, what are you feeling? What are the things that give you joy and draw from that? I I really cannot agree with you more. I feel exactly the same way and that's why i'm so inspired by you it's literally every day is like what what am i feeling what are the what's the collage what's the this on top of that or that with that that just is happy that looks like something i might have seen in nature or in my mind or in the galaxy or whatever it's just like this you know just totally gut instinct which is why for me looking at how people express themselves on the outside in terms of the messages that we're trying to deliver are so important because, you know, the brainwashing is so intense in terms of, you know, brands and and thinking that this is what style is when style is just completely yourself. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, as I said before, you really inspire me with that. One of the things that you were saying before is when you started to look into your 
history, um, you started to become more liberated. Mm -hmm. um, can you get into that a little bit, like in terms of family yeah. and, uh, yeah. So one of the things that I think being an artist, which I use that term really cautiously, um, has taught me is that even the most boring characters are deeply complex. We should actually excise the word boring from our conversations because nothing is actually boring. Boring is kind of a laziness or a sloppiness to actually figure out what's actually going on, you know? It's easy to dismiss something as boring, but they're actually deeply complex. And so I started to look at my parents, who I had seen and experienced as one-dimensional for a very long time. Because when you're a kid, you think, mom, dad. You don't think complex histories. You don't think, who did they love? What did they lose? Who are they as people? And I think as I started to come into myself, I started to look at my family and see all the ways in which they were gender unconforming and dissonant and the, which, the ways in which they were political. So, for example, my grandmother who passed away last summer, she moved to the U.S. in the 60s and she was teaching in Boston and she was wearing a sari every single day and they said that she couldn't teach at the school if she wore a sari. So she said, fuck it, I'm not going to teach here. And that for me is a style political moment where she was like, actually, my relationship with myself and my culture and my dress has nothing to do with my ability to participate in this job. So that now when people tell me I look unprofessional, I remember those histories. I remember the ways in which where I come from, people are actually saying no. And then I think about my mom, who started one of the first ever domestic violence hotlines for South Asian women, and how growing up I would hear phone calls and she would explain to me, you know, there, there's this thing called domestic violence. There's this thing called abuse. Things are not what they seem. I'm like, oh, that was a kernel that planted a seed that allowed me to say I'm not a man. That there's so many ways in which I am the continuation of so many of my ancestors' dreamings and imaginings and politics, you know? And I think that what we often do when we experience trauma is we make the people enacting the trauma in us one-dimensional. And I think what healing and emotional justice allowed me to see is, whoa, actually, my parents are complex. Their parents are complex. Those other people are complex. I come from these really complex histories where there are hiccups and ruptures and all the stories that they tell. And the stories that they tell are often the stories that they want me to know. <laughs> but if I dig deeper, and I think that's what's, what's been really beautiful about my relationship with my mother, is that I felt like actually telling my mom about my queerness has opened up the space where she could tell me about hers. And when I mean queerness, I don't necessarily mean gender or sexuality, but I mean all the parts that she's not normal. All the things she's not allowed to say. Like as a, what? We talk a lot about aging. We talk a lot about aging. Um, and, 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 and the desires you're not allowed to have. You're always supposed to be grateful. Um, like, your kids are your number one priority, like blah, 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 blah. But just to actually look at the reality of what it means to be an aging woman of color in a small town in Texas. <laughs> and, and, and to be lonely. And to want companionship and to know that actually you're already seen as disposable and to confront that and her ability to open up about that sense. And we talk a lot about she's caretaking for her elder parents, how this culture just demeans old people and doesn't actually want to talk about the money and the labor and the time that's involved in actually caring for old people. All these things that we're not supposed to say that just get normalized, get opened and so I think that my queerness was an invitation to my family to be like, what are the things we're not supposed to say? And let's go into it. In the same way it's around digging the pain, you know? Were they always um, accepting of you? Yes and no. Um, I think theoretically, they would say, I, I accept you, like, be yourself, whatever. But what that actually looks like is different. 
tolerance versus acceptance, right? So I think we struggled for a while because my mom would say things like, I don't want you to wear this because you're going to experience violence and I worry about you. And I would be like, mom, I need you to understand that's you displacing your own discomfort with me on other people. What you meant to say was, I'm uncomfortable by walking around on the street with you like this. And then, what would be, what's like this? Like wearing a dress. Um, How old were you? I mean, so the thing about me is like I was wearing quote unquote women's clothes, quote unquote, until I was like <laughs> six or seven, just wearing everything my sister wore. And it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. And then it became a big deal when I started going to school. Once again, how school ruins us. Right. <laughs> um, and then I sort of like started to only wear boys clothes. And then I, I started reclaiming that femininity in my early 20s. And now I can walk down the street like this with my mom. And that's so important to me to be able to have her support and to have her. I mean, obviously, she still gets a little uncomfortable sometimes, like people staring at us. I had this amazing moment two weeks ago. My grandfather is currently in New York. He's 91. And we took a walk together. I was wearing a functional, you know, five inch platform heel, hot pink. And we were just walking around me in my hot pink boots with my 91 year old grandfather. Mm-hmm. And it was like warm outside, but he's like always cold. So he's wearing like a huge scarf, like a big blazer, and then like me in booty shorts, you know? And everyone was staring at me because they're like, what the hell? Like, why is this person walking with this old man? And my grandpa literally looked at me. He's like, do people always look at you? Like, do people always stare at you? And I said, yeah. And he's like, why? And it was just such a beautiful moment to walk in that truth, to actually be like, I am all of this, you know? Like, I come from him. He sees me for me. And I showed him my fashion collection. And he was just like, wow, this is so beautiful. Like, and it, it wasn't a big deal, you know? And so I think in, in a lot of ways my coming into myself has allowed my family to come into themselves in so many other way, which is why I don't understand this as, as an individual. Like I really try to resist language of individualism. Me transitioning, or as I like to call it, transcending was allowing my family to transcend and to actually be like, what are all the parts of yourself that you've not been able to express? Mm-hmm. I love that. that so how, transcending. That's so so with your mom, like when, when she was, would get nervous and, mm-hmm. and you would say, actually it's you displacing your discomfort. Yeah. Like how, how did that like journey unfold between the two of you? Like to where, and is now, can you guys like walk down the street together? And yes, chill? we can. Um, I think she still gets a little nervous, but what I, what I really just returned to is that, so much of that anxiety is not about me. It's about her. Right. It's about how she's been conditioned to feel like she won't be taken seriously if she cares about her appearance as a woman. It's about how she's felt like her power comes from making herself small and uh-huh. making other people comfortable. Right. And so I try to pivot. Every time people are commenting about me, they're actually commenting on themselves. So I ask her, what's coming up for you? Like, what are you feeling? What histories, what moments, what encounters made you feel like your physical appearance had any bearing on your worth or dignity? And I'm deeply sorry, but that gives does not give you permission to do the same cycle of violence to me. Right. Like, I think a lot about inter- intergenerational cycles of violence. That's what where I'm really at and talking a lot about. How do we break cycles of violence where we don't do the same things that were done to us? Right. Whoa, that's so difficult. And to for mm-hmm. me to see my myself of being able to do that violence that was done to me and other people, like that's where I want to take our conversations. It's not just that there are bad people who are different than us, but that we often the way that we respond to violence is by doing the same thing to someone else, the same harm. And I think what my mom my relationship with my mom and her mom has allowed me to realize is the same things my mom was so frustrated about with her mom, she does. <laughs> and I'm like, Do you not realize that you're doing the exact same kind of things? And then She's like, oh, wait, I am. Like, how do we break out of that is, I think, where I'm really at in my life right now. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I say to them a lot is 
that upsets that's upsetting me right now is the identity politics and everyone in the different corners and no one speaking to each other. Hmm. Uh, no, you know, people, I just, I feel that, as we said at the beginning, that it's all about connecting and looking at each other and understanding each other. And really everyone's story at the end of the day is everyone's story. And that's what I've gotten out of interviewing thousands of people. Mm. Uh, and within each of us is myth is mythology. Mm-hmm. Within each person is a story that's of with, with that, that contains mythological, um, uh, things, you know, mythological points that are very healing if people would listen to the story and listen to who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm concerned about is the rebel becomes the dictator. Hmm. And that's how history repeats itself. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm worried about right now is just, I feel like when the rebel, be, that it disconnects us and it separates us and then we leave, that, then the opening is for the tyrant, hmm. you know, for the Trump, for the, you know, for the totalitarian uh, when all of the people that, you know, have more or less a lot in common or could understand each other um, are, are marginalized or struggling and are closer to liberating themselves from that struggle, let's say, you know, more whole in themselves or getting to that place or being honest with their feelings, as you would put it, mm. um, but then are not connecting or understanding each other mm. um, or or recognizing that together we're stronger. Mm. Um, that concerns me. And, mm-hmm. you know, then we end up, we just end up in these cycles in history where it just, it, it, you, you don't break through. I, I'm concerned about the same things, but I, I, I think it's a question of strategy for me. Like the way that we get to coalition, the way that we get to working together is not by saying we need coalition. It's, it's the difficult work of being able to say, I will never understand what you're going through and I will never understand the ways that I've hurt you, but I am here and I'm going to bear witness to that pain, even if it implicates me. And I think that work doesn't happen. We are so quick to jump to, we need to be in a family, we need to be in a coalition. But the way that we become a family in a coalition is when we're able to say, I understand that I've hurt you and I want to mm-hmm. be accountable to right. you. No, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. I completely agree with you. First, there has to be complete awareness and accountability for the right. pain that has been caused. Right. Absolutely, 100%. And then... There needs, you know, I feel that what needs to happen is a listening and an understanding and a, you know, a a coming together. Right. Um, I just, I I think a lot about what prevents us from coming together. And and I think what it is, is like when we are traumatized, we lose the ability to trust. mm -hmm. And I think I ask myself, and I think that that episode I spoke about earlier about the physical assault was such an important moment for me to actually phrase the following question. Like, what does it mean to trust when you've been hurt? And when you've been traumatized and when you have no reason to trust, right? And that's where the question of spirituality comes in. What I'm doing in the world is I'm literally going outside, not asking if I'm going to be assaulted, but when. Inevitably, someone is going to come and try to ruin my joy and take away my joy and punish me. But yet I still go outside. Why is that? And when I started to ask myself, like, am I just being silly? Like, what's, am I just being idealistic? And then I said, yes, I actually am being idealistic. And I want to fight for the right to be utopic, mm. idealistic, spiritual. What I'm actually arguing for is that there is and will be a better world. And I don't think a mm-hmm. lot of people have that frame anymore. I think cynicism has really taken over everything. Uh, where we're in this kind of like pessimistic, like everything is headed towards gloom and oblivion. And I get where that comes mm. from. 
but there's no space anymore to actually be like, I, I actually think that we can manifest a better world and a better way of being. And that's what makes me go outside is I think, okay, I'm gonna, people are going to encounter me today and I hope that they'll be fundamentally transformed. I hope that little kids will see me and be like, wow, I could be like that. I hope that parents could see me and be like, that is my child, cool. I hope that those little mini ruptures and whirlpools mm-hmm. will create movements, will create a new world, right? But that's a, a level of spiritual engagement I do not think that we have anymore in the left. And when I think about the crisis of politics today, it's a crisis of we only talk about facts and statistics and policies and empirical data. And that is not what's going to save us. We can know all the facts and statistics, but that doesn't change people's hearts and minds. And that's why I see the work that I'm doing as an artist as the work Mm -hmm. of a healer is that what we're trying to do with art is engage in a type of spiritual politics. We're actually saying, I'm generating hope. I am generating dreams. I'm generating um, wonder and amusement and joy. And these are things that will never be able to be reduced to language or categories or policies. But I think a lot of people dismiss people talking this language as crazy. That's what it's always been. Like the artists are always seen as crazy. And that's why during times of, 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 of nationalism and repression, they come for the artists first, which is why Trump cutting the National Endowment for the Arts is so important. Because what people will constantly do is say that art is not important. And then when art is not there, they will have no hope. And I'm like, well, <laughs> what, what do you think? So I think that for me, a lot of this current moment, part of it is because, once again, the schools the media everywhere, we're not actually uplifting art as a modality of being. We're not actually uplifting artists as our leaders. We're not actually taken to art as a way to actually work through these tensions and contradictions. And that's why for me, it's always the first things that are not seen as urgent, the things that are seen as, oh, we can just cut that. Those are the things we need to be fighting for. Feelings, gender, art, (laughs) like all these things that the world constantly tells me are not important. I'm like, but don't you see Like art is actually where we're engaging in the type of ways that we're going to be able to acknowledge the wound and heal it. It's totally the place that's going to touch you Mm -hmm. and change you. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the biggest risk you've taken in your life? I think the biggest risk that I've taken in my life is to care for, to care for other people. Um, Because I think caring for people really hurts. We don't talk about that. I mean, I think that the feminization of care has made it so that we have this sort of romanticized idea of the caretaker who has no problems themselves, who just shows up with this kind of martyr complex of like, I want to care for all the children, right? But I think for me, care is such a political expression um, Mm -hmm. to actually say like, I want to know, are you fed? Are you housed? Are you well? You know? But that work is very difficult because sometimes... It feels like you care and you care and you care and you care and you don't receive that back. And that hurts. Like, Mm. the lack of reciprocity is such a painful thing. And I think I felt that in that moment so much. And I feel that in my career a lot where I feel like I'm, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm nourishing, I'm nourishing, I'm nourishing. But who heals the healer? Who caretakes for the caretaker? I think that's a risk every day to care, knowing that that might not be reciprocated and knowing that you have to sit with that pain and knowing that you still have to have that pain and still be committed to caretaking, right? And so that's why I think for me, some of the most powerful people to me are, are people who see themselves as doing care work. Care work is so undervalued in all systems, right? Which is why we don't compensate domestic workers, which is why we actually think teaching is not as a real job, which is why we don't have really a system to take care of elderly people in this country. We don't think of care as real. <laughs> so I think it takes a risk to continue to come back to this volatile workforce that no one sees as legitimate, 
because you have to constantly tell yourself, I'm being gaslit by an entire world that actually relies on this thing, but is going to subsequently demean me for this thing and say that this thing doesn't matter. So you have to create your own systems of value. And that's really hard because then I don't have rewards like other people do. Like I don't have like, like success or accolades. You don't get recognized. Labels. Yeah. Getting promoted or all these other things that. You know, are so what's like a moment? Can you share like a like a personal moment where maybe you've, you know that 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 risk has like, uh, and that feeling of maybe having given and not receiving like where you feel that pain? Like, is it after a show or? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a moment that I constantly struggle with. I feel like I give my entire self at my performances. Like I give it all. I I really take it very seriously what I do, and I'm not putting on a show. I'm putting on my life. Like, I'm like, here's my everything. And then afterwards, when you realize that people are not ready for that truth, um, and, and the ways that I realize it, so for example, on my show, I say, do not call me strong. Like, I believe strong is a word we've invented to allow ourselves to be lazy and not support other people. Because then you just call people strong, and that means their capacity to withhold pain. And that's so messed up. Like, stop calling people strong to romanticize, like, how resilient they are to take pain. And instead say, can I help you? Or can I say, what do you need? Right. Like, recognize that when you call people strong. And people will be like, yeah, snapping, like, totally. And then afterwards, they'll come up to me and be like, you're so strong. You're so brave. You're so inspirational. And I'm just literally like, did you just hear anything? Like, what? <laughs> and it just devastates me because I'm like, I just gave you my entire cell. They and don't realize still, that they still that you no. still need them. But then I just really try to remind myself, I'm like, the journey, six years, the closet, it's gonna take a hundred of these performances. I'm up against everything. <laughs> I'm against I'm up against an entire world. Right. I can't think that two hours of hearing me scream on a microphone is gonna change everyone. And I have to have the return. <laughs> and that's I think the most difficult part of this work is the return. Like to come back exhausted, to come back traumatized to come back but we need to and this is what we were talking about before we need to have moments that we break we pause we heal we reassess and then we return and committing to the return is is what i've really been thinking about what care is actually about meaningful care doesn't look like i'm going to be there for you forever that's irresponsible to all parties involved meaningful care says i'm struggling right now i'm going to take time off to really reassess who i am and then i'm going to bounce back in a different way and that's what I'm really learning is that like care doesn't mean the lack of boundaries. It actually means verbalizing your boundaries. And it actually looks like in order to be an effective caretaker, you have to care for yourself. And that in order to be effective caretaker, you have to recognize that self-care and communal care are the same. Like that that's a false dichotomy, you know? And so I think that when I think about lack of reciprocity, it's it's I really have to because I think that's when I feel my lowest lows, when I feel like I've given everything to the world. I'm giving my vulnerability, my safety. Because every day I'm putting myself in jeopardy by saying and doing the things that I do and that other people don't reciprocate. But then I remind myself like, okay, the the success is not going to be immediate. And as an artist, you see the ways you affect culture because we're doing cultural work and you'll never be credited for it. But you don't need the credit. This is not about you. This is about the people, you know, mm-hmm. which is kind of romantic. But I'm, I'm really starting to remember that. I don't need... 
Yes, I would love I would love my labor to be credited. I'd love to be uplifted, all that. But that's all superficial. At the end of the day, what I'm trying to do is change culture. So I think those moments like meeting that kid for me were so profound because I was like, I've been I've been publicly doing this work now for six years. This kid is too. Hopefully I'm changing a culture where this kid is gonna have infrastructure, support, resources, people. Hopefully they're not gonna have to go through the same trauma as me. And that's the victory and success for me not about the social media followers or the money, but to actually make sure that other people have a better life. Yeah, we are in a very, very similar struggle and similar place. And that's, it's, it, it really is so helpful to even discuss that because we feel very isolated in that. Mm-hmm. And as I'm sure you do, and mm-hmm. we ha- have had some really low, low moments over the last year for the exact same reason where we just are not taking care of ourselves and we're p- putting out because we care so much. Right. We care so much about what, what we're doing in this community and the changes that we're making even sitting here with you is so unbelievably precious and valuable and everything to us. So in order for us to continue to be able to do this, um, we you know we have to be able to like... Take care of ourselves. Take care of ourselves. Right. It's important but, to remember we are the community. We are the movement. We are the people that we're trying to save. Like that already, I, I love the way that you introduced because fundamental to everything wrong in the world is the creation of the self other as a as a binary and as an oppositionality right and that's what individual individualism is wrong because it constantly sees ourselves as separate from one another rather than synchronous like i really think that so many of the things that we've been taught are oppositional or antagonistic are not exactly that things are not paradoxical or Mm -hmm. oxymoronic it's just that the mentality we have is the problem so what imagination allows me to do is to confront the tension and to imagine another way of viewing the tension, not as tension, but as harmonious. And that we are, of course, constantly going to be paradoxes because we're navigating frameworks that were not meant for it. So I think one of the mm-hmm. ones that we often involved in care work need to remember is that we are the very people that we're addressing as well. Yeah. And that's so hard. And we're, we're the very people that we're addressing. We're, we're healing our own pain. Right. Um, in this process, it, it's it, it's our life. It's our life blood. It's our it's what's making our heart pump and get up every day. And there's no not doing it. Right. There's no not doing it. So you know we and and you know you're doing we're doing what we feel we we know we're supposed to be doing, and there's no not doing it. And then you know the question is just how do we heal and how do we become our best selves mm-hmm. in order to you know to keep it going. And the social media thing is. Um, is difficult, you know, oh, the, it's, it's, ruined it's, it. it's, 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 you know, it's, it's <laughs> just, sure. the, you know, just seeing people, um, you know, just the liking, the gaining, the, you know, how do you feel about all that? Like, oh, it's just, it's, 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 it's so it's, we, we are, we are, we are just feel so it's so empty and it's, mm-hmm. it's so misleading Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, how do you? The feel algorithm that? is trying its best to destroy the most beautiful work, that the most captivating and foundationally life-altering work cannot be reduced to a five-second clip. It cannot. And virality is a science that will constantly mm-hmm. uplift the status quo. We talk about virality as if it's going to change the world, but things only go viral whenever people can identify with them and people can only identify with the things that they've been accustomed to. So when you present a new thing to someone, it's not going to go viral. 
Right. So virality, in fact, actually reproduces the status quo. And that's why for me, I use the internet as a tool to bring people to my shows. And then at my shows, I encourage people not to actually Instagram it, social media, to actually focus on me, to not have the camera as an intermediary force between us. And and so for me, social media is a means to an end, not the end. And the issue is that it's become an end. And for creatives, uh, it's very yes. difficult because the only life you're allowed to have is online. And I'm like, that's not what I want at all. There's so much more to this. And I, I think that this is where I've, I, it sounds kind of conservative to me, but I just feel like it's very different to receive a hug than a retweet. And I think we need to argue for that difference. And we need to say that what the, what the technological apparatus does is try to, commu- to simulate the real, but it is not. And there's something very important about presence that actually when you are present with someone in person, it is a fundamentally different dynamic than when you're engaging with them online. And of course, the internet has made information more accessible, has allowed people from various backgrounds to be able to participate. I am not underestimating that, but I am still making an argument for presence. And, and I, I think it, it it's very important as a performance artist, right? Because people don't want to come to live shows anymore. Across the board, people who are musicians, people in orchestras, people who are doing live bands. It's very difficult to tour a live act these days because people just want to say, do you have a video? Do you have a recording? And that just devastates us as an artistic economy because what we're actually doing is we're not just giving you a product, we're giving you an experience. And an experience is something that you can't just get from like clicking. <laughs> like it's just like, that's just Well, it's reducing everything to a formula again. So it's just, it, as you said, it's completely perpetuating. Now it started out as something revolutionary and it's, and it's quickly turned into a perpetuation of the status quo on mm-hmm. steroids, mm-hmm. like worse, mm-hmm. worse mm-hmm. because it's so mass and so, and so homogenous and so lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. And it keeps um, us competing. And that's, that's the right. part Ugh. that is so devastating. And keeps us constantly comparing othering other and, and, and feeling not good enough. And Absolutely. And that there's a scarcity. It's always about like, okay, if they're looking at other people's content, they're looking at my content. And it's about content. And like, people mm. are not content. People are not mm. brands. We need mm. to be able to say that. Like, social media has made us feel like our life is a brand. That is tragic. <laughs> So how do you like on a day-to-day basis being someone that obviously uses social media mm-hmm. and is active on social media, how do you like kind of create a balance for yourself and like what do you say to yourself or I don't know, how do you, like how do you actually daily in, engage with social media? I think that I'm fortunate and that I have a live arts practice, right? So I'm able to really pivot. So I'm able to constantly have a reminder of what I'm fighting for. When I perform, I'm like, this is what I want. Right. This is who I am. This is what I do. It all this turns is, off. This is where yeah. everything is good. This is where it all turns off. So I'm always thinking about how do I bring people into the seats of my shows. So I use social media as a tool to like let people know, hey, who's I? Here's who I am. Build people's trust. Like, okay, cool. But that's not me. Like, right. I I genuinely feel like I am giving people me when I'm at my show. But that's where I've learned about the art of compartmentalizing. Like uh, the art of not not everyone deserves your 100. percent And people who are giving their 100 percent to the internet, I. I'm scared for you because I don't know if, if those people deserve it and what they're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. I think when I started using mm-hmm. social media, I was doing that. I was like, this is me. But now I'm like, you, you don't care about me. And what I actually want is care means I matter more than my ability to be inspirational, uh, my ability to be strong, my ability to, to teach you. 
my ability to have utility. I matter just for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And what the algorithm makes us feel is mm -hmm. we only matter if we're innovative, if we're cutting edge, if we're... That's such a toxic way of relating to people. And so I always remind myself, I want to matter simply for being, and I will only use the internet as a tool to do that. And if I feel like I've gotten too far, I really dial back. I think it actually rewards... I mean, I wish it rewarded innovation. I think it actually... The algorithm... I know what you're saying when mm. you say... Newness, new. New, next, yeah, next, like next. things next, next, next. But I mean, it, it's rewarding um, a lot of false, phony behavior. I mean, it's right. it, it's it, it's rewarding superficiality. Right. Yeah, it's rewarding superficiality, and 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 it's it's I don't know what now. Like it's it's. I th I think we probably all feel this way. I think I I feel like there's a bit of a I, I have a sense that there's a there's a fatigue. Oh, yeah. yes, absolutely. And private conversations. But I, I think that it's very difficult for people to actually divest because then you lose. That's the thing about privilege right. and power. It's like... Right, you lose the game. Yeah. yeah. The but, minute you're quiet, the minute you drop out We just it, had such minute. a depressing conversation. We're, we're like, <laughs> we've been trying to have like little consultations with some YouTube experts mm. and some Instagram experts and yada yada and we we have like not a good strategy for youtube growth at all because we, we have no strategy we, for anything we, we just do what we what because we, we take is, breaks because we right. in order to make like these we have in, no strategy in, in order to make these videos that are we just do what we love and what we I feel passionate my, about that's our strategy no, but i'm just saying they don't reward the algorithm on youtube mm -hmm. literally right. we do our we have our content in seasons that are like two months long and then but in order to actually like sustain it we have to be in our production mode and then in our publishing mode and we can't do it all we don't have the money to do it all and to be constantly publishing and we were on the phone with the lady from youtube yesterday and she literally said that like that's what's fucking up like the consistency you know our the algorithm truly will stop right. rewarding you and stop showing you to other people unless you're constantly posting Absolutely. constantly and right. the same is on instagram right and the, we have a crisis where we have an onslaught of content it's it's an overpopulation mm -hmm. of content mm -hmm. and 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 i think that's where also like i i have a one and a half hour show <laughs> you have to sit for an hour and a half you can't have just a five minute attention thing like yeah. i i i and, and that's where i once again i'm like like for example where i'm from in kerala and in south india we have a real crisis there where we come from a theater culture we have something called kathakali which is a form of dance and like sort of drag thousands year old drag and people literally spent hours and hours and hours years and years and years preparing for this art form they make their own makeup out of like trees and plants they learn how to do that and, and when i was recently back i was talking to my uncle and he was like people aren't coming to these shows anymore and so they're not being funded because no one wants to come anymore because these literally productions take like six hours ten hours you know and i'm like that is so devastating to me as an artist that we're losing durational art like, and, and, and the purpose of durational art was to interrupt your day, was to be like, you have to immerse yourself in this. But that's what the purpose of mm -hmm. ritual is. Mm -hmm. When my grandmother died, there were all these rituals I had to do, and I was so mad. But then I realized the reason that these rituals exist is precisely because they inconvenience me. And I have to literally carry these ashes, and I have to sit here for hours encountering. And, and that's, that's how we deal with death, encountering, being burdened, being inconvenienced, pausing. And what the algorithm doesn't allow us to do is to do that work of pause. What do you think is like your biggest um, source of shame? Do you feel like you have shame around anything anymore? Mm -hmm. I feel like I've had to for a long time um, only 
position myself as a political object and not a desirable object. What I mean is I feel like I've focused on like being smart, being creative, and never allowing myself to be sexy. Um, because I think that the reality of violence we experience as trans people is that the majority of people who injure and harm us are our intimate partners. Um, and it's a domestic violence issue. And so I feel like I've had to de-eroticize myself as a way to protect myself, that I can't actually say I am beautiful and I am worthy of desire because then people are just going to see me as a threat. And that's something I've really started to encounter with myself to actually be like, I am worthy of being loved. Like I'm worthy of being desired. I'm worthy of having people desire me. And that's so hard. I have so much shame because there's so much shame about desiring someone like me. Um, people literally would rather kill than actually be like, I desire someone like that. And I think as trans people, we internalize that to be like, we are the problem, we are the problem, and we're not. And so I really, I think I'm embarking on a new journey now to actually be able to claim my own sensuality, to be able to say, like, I shouldn't have to, like, invisibilize the fact that I'm attractive. I shouldn't have to be able to invisibilize the fact that I have desires. That doesn't make me wrong or bad. So, and so how do you feel like that shame, like, I don't know, how does it show up in like a day-to-day? I spend so much time um, pretending that I don't need affection. Right. (laughs) Pretending that you don't have these desires. Yeah. I spend so much time working um, because I feel like the only way I can be desirable is by being exceptional. Exceptionally Mm -hmm. hardworking, exceptionally smart, exceptionally articulate. And I'm not allowed to just be desirable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have to Mm -hmm. be desirable for doing something versus for me. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I've done is I've created a structure and a schedule in my life where I'm constantly excelling and constantly people are like, you're so smart. You're so, but it's always about, I like your outfit. Mm-hmm. I like your poetry. I like your work, but it's never, I like you. And I think that I, I feel so much shame about allowing people to like me and liking myself, that myself isn't linked to my ability to do work or to be excellent or to perform or to do all this labor. I think that's where I'm really taking myself with this next work is like, I could literally quit everything I'm doing and still matter. I could literally stop wearing any fun, fashionable things and still matter. That sense of self, I think I still have so much shame for. Like, I think that it's, we're all hypocritical, but I think it's very hypocritical of me and I've assessed this in my life to argue for the worth and meaning of everyone else. But then at a fundamental level, my worth and meaning is linked to my productivity. Like what? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're working that out. You're, 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 your process and bravery in recognizing that shame and being honest about that shame is and 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 will inevitably lead to your and it is in the process of 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 your breaking through the shame and that is going to help other people so it's a complete so it's a complete circle do you feel like um like as far as i guess desire goes and being desired do you feel like you like don't give any attention to that part of your life or no uh, attention whatsoever yeah i mean me either (laughs) still none yeah not yet do you yeah like so what's your plan do you feel afraid to like do you know what you do like if you were to do you feel like you wouldn't know where to turn because the culture is just like yeah how do you feel about that i'm figuring it out i think that this is where friendship has really come in i've i've approached my close friends and i'm like i need help Mm -hmm. i don't even know where to begin like, mm-hmm. I, I literally mm-hmm. do not know when people are flirting with me because I just do not even see myself as desirable. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if anyone's the people are always like, oh my god, people are always interested. I'm like, what? Like I have no awareness of myself at all mm-hmm. as as being lovable in that way. And that sucks. Like to know that I only see myself as having worth as a political object or as like a inspirational object, but not a lovable or desirable object. Mm-hmm. Like that's a mess. So I don't know. I think I'm I'm at the beginning of it, but I think that even articulating it is something, you know. Yeah, totally. And I think you're very lovable. Thanks. <laughs> personally. But I but I fully, fully acknowledge and understand what you're saying completely. And I I'm excited about that for you because I see you as lovable. So and I'm sure many other people do, and I'm sure it it's it's gonna happen. So what do you what are you most afraid of? I don't know if it's a most, but it's a fear. Uh, it's very cliche, but I really believe in cliches. Like, that's why I have such a great time in, like, uh, thank you card sections and, like, uh, stores. I just read these, like, Hallmark cards and I'm just crying. <laughs> I'm like, wow. But I think I'm afraid of my own power. Mm. Like, I just, I notice in my life how I've pushed in some dimensions, but not in others. Like, I know I can sing. I know I can dance. I know I can take my performances to the next level. But I just haven't. And when I really ask myself, why haven't I done that work? It's like, whoa, I am so enormous. And that's so intimidating. (laughs) Like, I just think that the most violent is the self-policing. Because, like, you can be mad at other people over and over and over again. But then when you're mad at yourself for not allowing your potential to be, like, oh, my God, that's a cycle. But I think for me, I really fear what I'm capable of doing. Um, And I think that I often hold myself back and only allow myself to thrive in certain realms when I know I can thrive in others. Meaning are you afraid that you won't reach your, like, that you won't own your power? Or you're literally afraid of, like, how powerful powerful you you are? are? I think the second one. You know, I think oftentimes people don't articulate the truths because they're afraid of what that truth will mean for their life. And the same way, I feel like people often don't step into their power or roll into their power because they know that would mean they would have to fundamentally change. And as much as I can wax poetic about how beautiful change is, it's devastatingly difficult to deal with. And so to really come into my power would require so many changes in my life. It would require letting go of relationships that feel familiar would require letting go of conventions that I've adopted in myself. It's the same perennial thing that we said about the sort of the rebel becoming the tyrant, becoming the medicine, becoming the poison. These things are cyclical. And so I think I'm reaching a point in my life where I'm like, have I become my own person holding me back? And how do I resist that? And how do I move to the next dimension? So coming into power is scary because it requires and necessitates a type of change to your life. And we get comfortable. I think I've gotten comfortable with the current iteration of myself. And to really submit to a new iteration of myself is is very scary. Mm. It's ultimately what you were saying before about surrender Mm -hmm. and becoming. Mm -hmm. What does self-acceptance mean to you? Uh, It's an oxymoron because there is no self. (laughs) (laughs) So it's accepting that you don't exist and that you do exist at the same time. It's accepting that you are and you are not at the same time. It's about accepting that you're a person and you're people at the same time. So I think it's like a, I've really been thinking a lot about 
how we are everything, you know? It's like so, once again, cliche, but I love cliches. <laughs> like we well, are, they're there for a reason. Yes, they're there for a reason. They're often very poetic. Mm-hmm. We really are all of it. Like my, I've recently become friends with my friend Nico, and he has this new book of poetry called All of It Is You. And I just think about that all the time. I say it on all my shows, and I'm just like, all of it is you. Like literally, there are no contradictions. All of it is you. All the parts of me, the inconvenient, the boring, the spectacular, all of it. And just really having that acceptance, wow, that's what I think Mm -hmm. it really looks like to be able to be like, I am all of it. Mm -hmm. And if you could like speak to your 12-year-old self or the self that was maybe just starting to feel like they had to like uh, look masculine or Mm -hmm. fit into any box or what would you you Erase themselves in any way. Hmm. What would you say? I would just say I understand I think for a long time I beat myself up for the things I did to survive. And there's no perfect way to survive. (laughs) Like we keep on wanting perfect survivors. And the truth is when you're experiencing violence in the moment, you do what you need to do to get by in the moment. And I think I would really just be like, I trust that you're going to do what you have to do. And that doesn't make you a bad person or closeted or wrong. You're doing what you need to do. I think I needed to hear that. I think I still feel a lot of guilt for not living my truest self when I was younger. Um, And I put a lot of judgment on myself. Why wasn't I strong enough? Why couldn't I I endure the pain? Why couldn't I be charismatic? Without actually giving a sense of forgiveness to actually be like, you don't need to be anything else than what you are, you know? And I think that's what I'm really trying to model now when when I speak to a lot of queer and trans young people is like, you actually don't have to come out. You don't. not everyone deserves your 100%. You get to make the choices and decisions that you need to make in order to survive, and that's okay, and there's no moral judgment about that. That was beautiful. Mm -hmm. The whole thing was beautiful. I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Deeply. And we appreciate this so, so much. It's amazing to be doing this with you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thanks for having me. And... um, Yeah, this was amazing. Thank you. We hope you were inspired by this episode. Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa. And me, Lily. If you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by sharing this episode and subscribing to our podcast. You can also watch our videos by subscribing to our YouTube channel and following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook using the handle at StyleIQ. That's the letter U instead of the word U. And check out our book, True Style is What's Underneath, The Self-Acceptance Revolution, on Amazon or at a local bookstore near you. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There's no finding oneself when glossing over the truth. Hey, I'm Sapphire. Want to hear something scary? If you love getting the chills, make sure to tune in to the Something Scary podcast. Come join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folktales, and ghost stories from my friends, family, and listeners like you. Like stories about skinwalkers, powerful sorcerers with the ability to change their appearance into another animal so that they can kill more easily. And hearing about them draws them right to you. Oops. Subscribe to the Something Scary podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi, this is Candace Lowry from Persister. 
Persister is a podcast where I interview badass women who've broken down barriers to really make a name for themselves. I'm talking to actors, entrepreneurs, and just women who know how to get stuff done and can help you learn how to get ahead. You can listen to Persister on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.